You'll be aware that as we're approaching Easter this year, we're focusing on three meals with Jesus, which all appear as it happens in the Gospel of John. And the second meal that we're going to explore today has become known in history as the Last Supper, because this is, of course, the final meal that Jesus ate before he was crucified. After this evening food with friends, Jesus was arrested and later declared guilty of blasphemy by a hastily arranged court and then kept overnight in brutal custody before being led out the next morning to be crucified. I hope you're not squeamish about feet because in last week's dinner, the feet of Jesus were washed. And now John tells us in this chapter that this last supper was dominated by Jesus himself washing the dirty feet of his own disciples. Not one of them wanted to do such a menial task, but Jesus showed them the way. The greatest ever leader of men showed them how to be the very humblest of servants. Now, the chapter 13 that we read splits neatly into three sections. So we're going to think, first of all, about, in verse 1 to 5, about a demonstration of the love of Jesus. Then in verses 6 to 11, we're going to think about an interruption that happens that gives Jesus the opportunity to teach some stuff. And then lastly, in verses 12 to 17, Jesus himself gives an explanation of how we can apply what happens in this second meal to ourselves. We're going to spend a little bit more time on the first section and a bit less on the middle section and then even less time on the final section. So hopefully it'll feel like we're speeding up as we go through uh, these few verses. So first of all then, a demonstration of love. I think it's fairly easy to grasp the major theme in this passage because John tells us exactly what this is all about at the end of verse one. He says there, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. In simple terms, this whole chapter is basically designed to unpack and prove and demonstrate what John says there at the end of verse one. Jesus loved them, John says. Let me show you exactly how much. So first of all, I want us to see four things about the kind of love that Jesus has for his disciples here. And first of all, I want to suggest that Jesus' love is a secure love. The first thing to notice in this passage is how many times John talks about what Jesus knew. First of all, it seems that Jesus knew what was going to happen tomorrow. John tells us here in verse 1, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That little phrase, the time had come, is not an accidental phrase because at least a couple of times in John's Gospel, we hear John saying to people, or Jesus saying to people, my time has not yet come. And towards the end of chapter 12, Jesus speaks of a seed falling into the ground as if it had died. And then he seems to groan inwardly as he contemplates his own impending death. 
And he says the the hour has come. It, it, John is wanting us to know that Jesus knows that the time has come for him to face death by crucifixion tomorrow. Jesus knows. The second thing that John says that Jesus knows is he, he knows exactly who he is. This might sound very simple, I think, but I, I wonder whether for many of us, our whole lives are dominated by trying to understand who we are, where we've come from and where we're going. But John says exactly this about Jesus. He, he elaborates on verse one. In verse three, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and, and was returning to God. Jesus knows where he's come from, what he's doing, where he's going. He knows exactly who he is. And thirdly, he also knows what other people are about to do. You might remember when Ben was uh, talking to us last week about the first meal in Bethany. John told us that Judas was a thief. But now here in verse two, he tells us that Judas, the devil has prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew it beforehand. And later on in this chapter, he mentions it during the meal. But more than that, Jesus also knew what Peter would do, that Peter would also deny that he even knew Jesus, even though Peter is adamant that he won't. I think all of this points to the fact that the death of Jesus was not an accident or a mistake. Jesus knows that this is why he had come. This is the most perfectly executed, deliberate plan of all the ancient ages. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows who he is. He knows what others are doing. He's the master in this situation. What I want you to notice on the back of all of that is one tiny little word at the start of verse four and it's the little word so with all of this knowing in mind John then says so so John connects what Jesus knew to what Jesus then did Jesus knew this Jesus knew that Jesus knew everything John says so, so he stripped down to his underwear, grabbed a towel, filled a basin with clean water and knelt down to wash their dirty feet. I think John is really underlining for us here the fact that Jesus can love them like this because he knows who he is and that he knows that his father loves him. But his knowledge doesn't puff him up with pride and superiority. His knowledge seems to set him free to kneel down and serve. It is his security that sets him free to serve. Jesus doesn't love them here from a place of neediness. He loves them from a place of great security. 
The second thing that should be obvious to us is that the love of Jesus here has something of humility about it. When I was in school, I seem to remember that we learnt about strata in different kinds of rock. The whole geology, basically, layers of materials one on top of the other. I can remember textbooks and seeing pictures of all these stripy layers of different coloured rocks in the strata. Prior to this meal, the disciples had been arguing. Maybe they were still arguing as this meal started. And do you know what they were arguing about? They were arguing about which one of them was in which layer. Some of them are thinking, I must be near the top. And others of them are thinking, I don't care which layer of strata I'm in, so long as I'm not below him. Isn't our thinking so often dominated by these kind of comparisons? It's almost a default way that we humans think. And in the light of all of that, in the light of all that pecking order and strata being discussed and debated and argued about, Jesus gets up and grabs a towel. I'll do it. In truth, Jesus is way up here at the top of the strata. But he isn't like we would be if we lived there. He takes off his outer garment, he slowly fills a bowl, and he goes around their, t their table, washing their feet one by one. No thought for the strata. No thinking, I'm not doing it. They'll think I'm some kind of slave. Actually, elsewhere, Jesus had said to his friends, I am among you as one who serves. And here he is doing exactly that. The third thing about the love of Jesus here is that it is so intensely practical. And a third thing to notice here is that the love of Jesus is not just a theoretical love. Jesus doesn't just lie back at the table and say, I love you all. He gets up and does what needs to be done. His love is not just words, but it's practical. John, who wrote this gospel, was there and he saw this. Jesus will have washed his feet. And many years later, John wrote a letter in the New Testament to other Christians. And he said, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. We see here that there's nothing vague or sentimental, if you like, about the love of Jesus. He is willing to do whatever it takes. And the, the last thing I want us to notice about the love of Jesus here is, is how unconditional it also is. Perhaps this is the most amazing thing, that the love of Jesus here is not based on their worthiness to be the objects of his love and kindness. At this point, even Judas is there. We've just talked about how they've been arguing about which of them is the greatest. 
But Jesus doesn't put up a flip chart in the corner of the room with a few rules on it. Look, guys, I'll wash your feet, but here are my conditions. I'm not humbling myself for nothing here. There's no standard here that Jesus is waiting for them to meet. His love is a love that doesn't wait to be loved first. His love isn't saying, I'll do my bit when you do yours. In fact, Jesus doesn't save them because of anything in them. Jesus saves them because this is what he himself is like. He doesn't love them because they're lovable. He makes the first move. John again saw this and it changed his whole life. Later on in that same letter that we mentioned, John would sum this up by saying very profoundly, we love because he first loved us. In this supper then, Jesus is showing the way. I'll do it. I'll go first. I'll cross the road. I'll take down the barriers. I'll put things right. Some commentators see this meal and what Jesus does here as a sort of tremendous parallel of the fact that Jesus became human in the first place. This, of course, is just a random upstairs room in a house somewhere. But imagine Jesus, the eternal Son of God, for a moment. Imagine him in glory taking off his royal robes, laying aside his position in the strata and putting the towel of human flesh around himself and coming into this world to serve his creation. In summary then, John is telling us about this second Easter meal because this supper is, first of all, a great demonstration of the full extent of his love. It is totally secure, deeply humble, truly practical and completely unconditional. But then in verse 6 down to verse 11, there's an interruption. Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall in this scene? Imagine for a moment the shock as Jesus quietly goes around the table, washing feet one by one. The disciples are catching each, other, each other's eyes and wondering who's going to break the awkward silence. And it always seems to be Peter, doesn't it, in the Gospels, who breaks the silence. And so Peter... Look with me at verse 6. Jesus comes to Simon Peter. I don't know whether he was the first or the second or the fifth or the tenth. He gets to Simon Peter, who says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Apparently, in the, in, in the original language, the contrast there between the you and the me is very emphatic. Peter basically says here, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replies here in verse 7 in a very interesting way. He very gently uses Peter's interrupting question as a springboard to make the point that Peter can't yet fully understand 
the full picture. Verse 7, you do not realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. You can't see it yet, Peter, but you will soon. And then the temperature rises as Peter rebukes Jesus. No, says Peter, you shall never wash my feet. That is quite a powerful rebuke. Jesus has said, you don't get it now, but you will. And Peter's reply is effectively, Lord, I don't care whether it's now or later. Let's get one thing straight. You are not washing my feet. Okay? We can perhaps understand Peter, can't we? I think this is about the strata again. Peter is thinking, you're the Lord. I'm a rough northern fisherman. Lord, no, please, no. You can't wash my feet. This is too much. I think in a way, Peter means well. But there's something he doesn't yet understand. And now the way is open because of this interruption for a much deeper truth to emerge. And Jesus says something amazing in the second half of verse 8. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. First of all, like a child, Peter goes from one extreme to the other. At first, he definitely doesn't want to be washed at all. Now, he seems to want the full spa day. Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Peter's obviously an all or nothing kind of guy. This needs a little bit of uh, explanation. And I want to say it like this. I, I think Jesus here must be thinking something along the lines of, if you think this is difficult... If you find it hard, Peter, for me to wash your feet and to accept that, just wait till tomorrow. Because if Peter is struggling to let Jesus wash his feet, how on earth will he cope when it dawns on him that Jesus has come to die for him? Jesus is saying, you can't have me at all unless you allow me to clean you. And that isn't a reference to his smelly feet, but a reference to the bloody cross still to come tomorrow. What Jesus is really saying in the face of Peter's reluctance is if you cannot let your Lord wash your feet, how on earth will you deal with the fact that he'll be crucified for you. It might feel humble for you not to let me help you, but actually it's your pride that refuses me. And if you don't allow me to wash you, you'll lose me. Verse 10 is very difficult, but I think Jesus is teaching them two truths here at the same time. The first truth is that only Jesus can take away the dirt of of their sin and make them truly clean. We know that this happens through his death for them, 
But but the second thing Jesus is teaching here is that this is a one-time thing. Jesus therefore says here, and you are clean, except Judas, of course. He, he wasn't clean. You, you're clean, guys. You've metaphorically had a bath, put on your aftershave, and you're ready now to go out and face the world. And when you've already had a bath, you don't need to go and have another one. You might need to brush your teeth or wash your hands, but you are basically already clean. I, I think the Bible contains many wonderful and simple pictures of what it means to be a child of God. And here, right here, is another brilliant one. The dirty can be made clean. Jesus wants to make you clean. Clean conscience, clean slate, clean intentions. fresh, clean water of forgiveness, in a sense. What a wonderful thing it is that Jesus comes not to condemn, but to cleanse. So, while this foot washing was, first of all, practically a great demonstration of the love of Jesus. It is also intended as a foretaste of where his love will take him the very next day. Jesus is not just humble enough to wash their feet, but he also has within himself everything that it takes to take away all of their moral dirt, to take it onto himself and to die in their place. The judgment that they deserved fell on his shoulders so that they could all be washed clean. Thirdly, Jesus from verse 12 down to verse 17 gives a kind of explanation. In verse 12, Jesus returns to his seat at the table and he asks them a question. Do you understand what I've done for you. And in verse 15, Jesus explains why he's done for them what, what he has done here. Verse 15 says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed or happy if you do them. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, it isn't that Jesus is urging them to regularly wash each other's feet and neither is he telling them to die for each other's sins. They couldn't do that. But Jesus is here aiming at their hearts and wanting them to love each other like he loves them. 
In fact, Jesus later says this very thing in verse 34. He says to them, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. How much should you love others? You, you, you should love them as much as Jesus has loved you. Let's try and wrap up and um, let's have a go at trying to summarise the three sections here that we've been looking at together. For John, first of all, this is clearly all about the great love of Jesus. It is secure and humble and practical and unconditional. But John then grabs hold of that truth and seems to take it in two different directions. And I think it might help us to see to see them as vertical and horizontal aspects of the same thing. So vertically, John is trying to show us here that the love of Jesus for us is the basis for our relationship with God. The death of Jesus is the basis of us being cleansed and brought into a secure relationship with our Father in heaven and with him. But horizontally then, the love of Jesus is also the pattern for how we should serve one another with the same love that he has loved us with. So this love is kind of the basis of our relationship with God and the pattern for how we treat one another. I think this is what John meant when he wrote in that letter later, we love because he first loved us. That, that's what this is trying to say. We love because he first loved us. And this is what Peter needed to learn. He had to let Jesus be his saviour so that Jesus could then be his pattern. And when we know that we are securely loved, made clean, forgiven by Jesus, accepted by him, we are liberated then to serve one another humbly with the same kind of love that Jesus has loved us with. So this second Easter supper meal teaches us two things. First of all, it teaches us that to be right with God, we need to allow Jesus to be our saviour. We can't be like Peter and say, Lord, you can't do this for me. We need to allow Jesus to be our saviour, to trust him. I think our whole culture tells us constantly to look inside of ourselves and find our inner hero. I think John would caution us against that kind of approach and say, we need to stop looking inside of ourselves and start looking outside of ourselves to this Jesus and his love for us. The whole reason Jesus, uh, John wrote this gospel and recorded these Easter meals that we're looking at is so that we would prick up our ears and open our eyes to see and know and believe in Jesus as the saviour that we all so desperately need.
But secondly, Jesus is also the pattern. Many of you are obviously involved here in our church family, and I'm conscious of what a great invention church is. And the reason it's a great invention is because it's so easy to love abstract people because that makes no demands on us. Our church family might be messy sometimes, but the great thing about it is that we're called to love the actual real person sitting next to us. You don't have to wait for someone else to do it. You can make the first move. You can take the risk. You can volunteer. You can help. You can make a difference. You can be part of the team rather than just a spectator. In the same way that Jesus has made the first move in loving you, you can love others with the same attitude. The more you know of the love of Christ, the more willing you'll be to serve one another like Jesus did. I have set you an example, Jesus says, that you should do as I have done for you. I, I can't remember if I've shared this with you before, so forgive me if I have, but in, in the early part of the last century, US uh, president, I think he was a president, Theodore Roosevelt gave an inspirational speech on citizenship in Paris. Let me read to you uh, what Roosevelt said. This, this was in 1910. He said this, it is not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who does actually strive to do the deeds, who at, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the very worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. My question for you then is, are you in the arena? Don't be a cold or timid soul, but for Christ's sake, dare greatly. Let's bow for a moment's reflection. Perhaps there's someone here and you've never truly trusted this Jesus. Why not embrace him in faith right now? And maybe you've been too concerned about which level of strata you're in. And you've been far too prone to comparing yourselves with others. And it's made you proud or bitter. Maybe today you need to learn to rest again in the love of Christ for you. 
Maybe there's something today that you've been challenged to do that you've not been doing. Maybe there's something in what we've looked at that challenges you. Maybe there's someone you need to apologise to. Let me close before our musicians come up and uh, we sing. Let me close by reading from that letter that I referred to several times that John wrote. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read from verse 7. John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Amen.